From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Emily Ernson. This is your news for Friday, July 28th. Utah is home to the world's largest and oldest tree, depending on your definition of a tree. This tree is actually more like a forest. It's a grove of genetically identical quaking aspens that all share a common root system. This massive aspen grove is called Pando, and it takes up 106 acres of Fish Lake National Forest in central Utah. Scientists believe it's somewhere between 8,000 and 13,000 years old. This organism most likely lived through the Ice Age, but now its health is failing, and researchers at the Division of Wildlife Resources are pointing their fingers at mule deer. Aspen is a nutritious plant for big game animals. This is Vance Mumford, a wildlife biologist with the DWR. So they do browse on the leaves and the stems, particularly of the young ones that are just coming up. Browsing is a natural thing, right? But when the browsing is more than the root system can withstand, in other words, the small trees growing up from the roots, not enough of them survive to adulthood to replace the trees that are dying, then that becomes a problem. And that happens a lot on the short-term basis all over our forests. But on the Pando, what they noticed is that, hey, we haven't had successful recruitment of new aspen trees for quite a few years, maybe even decades. And so that became a problem. And if we look through the forest here, we see the, the large mature trees are really thinning out. And that's a sign that we haven't recruited new trees for quite a while. About half of the aspen grove is fenced off to prevent deer from eating the young trees. But the DWR still wants to know to what extent the deer are harming Pando. So what we're doing today is capturing mule deer, placing radio collars on them, and we will track them for the life of the collar, see where they go, how often they get through the fenced barriers, when they arrive at the clone from their winter range, when do they leave the clone in the fall to go to their winter range. Um, So we look at all that. So once you have all of this information about what the deer are doing, what are you going to do about it? So we've talked about hazing or herding deer from an area. That's often not a very good solution. They just run away for a little while and then they come right back, right? This is an area where the deer want to be. That's why they're here, right? There's population reduction, right? That's always a possibility. We're trying to avoid that. I think to also keep in mind is as people, you know, we're a pretty short-lived species, right? Forests are very long-lived. And so our solutions here don't have to be immediate. Uh, nature operates on a, on a long time scale. Mumford says the DWR could also consider increasing the number of deer hunting permits to thin the herd. This may come up, so I'm just going to say, so some people have mentioned, let's introduce wolves here to help control the deer population. Uh, in other places, maybe that's worked and that, but I, I think wolves, if we released, I, I'm just picturing a wolf pack probably isn't going to hang out at the Dr. Creek campground and so or right next to a highway very often. So just looking at this clone in particular, I don't see that as really being a a real solution to this. He took me to the edge of the fence that surrounds part of Pando. This tells a story right here. So on our left, we see an unfenced aspen grove, which is part of the Pando, and we see fewer small aspen trees coming up. And we have on our right side, this fence that has been up for a number of years now. And here we have a lot of trees anywhere from a couple years old uh, to maybe 10 years old. 
When I asked why they don't just fence it all, he said they want to keep parts of the forest open for people to hike through and explore. What is the main way that you can tell that Pando is dying? So one, I, I don't think we should say Pando's dying, but it's not as healthy as it should be. So the main way you can tell is, if we look across this area that's not fenced here, we have a lot of trees that over the last 30, 40 years have fallen down because of wind uh, and just died. These big trees haven't died because of deer or anything else, but just a natural thing. So we know it's unhealthy because we have a, a big root system with few large mature trees. Pando is also suffering from multiple diseases that are common among quaking aspens. Leaf spot prevents the leaves from photosynthesizing, and two different kinds of bark infections, the conch fungus and target canker, strangle the trees and prevent new branches from growing. Scientists didn't realize that the aspens that make up Pando were all clones until 2008, so researchers still have a lot to learn about the organism. The DWR's study will track 10 deer for at least a year to learn more about their grazing habits. So it's sustained, whatever, thousands of years of deer eating <laughs> the young aspen trees. But what's different now? Are there more mule deer? Overall, we're actually a couple thousand deer under what our population objective is, our goal. And so overall, the population isn't high. But it seems to be right here near the Pando, we have a good, solid, healthy population of deer that are browsing a little more than than we would like to see on this aspen stand. Hard to say why. We have a lot of predators here. We have black bear, mountain lion, bobcat, and coyotes. Those are the main large predators that we have here that can feed on deer. But if you look around the Pando, we also have a major highway. We have summer homes, we have campgrounds, and all those sometimes can reduce predator activity. I tagged along with Mumford while he went to help collar a deer in a nearby meadow. The other DWR biologists were already there taking the deer's vitals and putting the collar on. The collar's batteries will last one year. Toward the end of next year, they'll have to dart this same deer and replace the batteries on her collar. While we were walking out of the forest, I asked Mumford a kind of silly question. Does Pando make any cool sounds? And he had a really beautiful answer. If you listen really carefully, you can hear the trees talking to you. <laughs> Whoa, uh, yeah? What does that sound you, like? You know, the sounds in the Pandal clone or any Aspen clone, you know, the rustling of the leaves, but really the wildlife that's, uh, that's here in the area. You might hear some songbirds here, some geese on the lake or, or anything, you know, uh, crickets, insects, everything depends on the habitat around us, right? Um, whether it's trees or grass or whatever it is. And aspen stands are one of the most productive systems in a forest, right? And, and because of that, there's lots of different species of, of wildlife. The DWR wants to make sure that mule deer continue to be part of that habitat without harming Pando. You can find more information about the world's largest and oldest tree in today's show notes. Shoes are a big source of waste. According to the U.S. Department of the Interior, every year Americans throw away over 300 million pairs of shoes. KGNU's Sam Fuqua looks at the impact of shoes on the environment and ways to recycle and reuse them. At the end of each school year, Columbine Elementary in North Boulder hosts its annual Mile Marathon. Fifth grader Jose sums up the event after running his one-mile course around the neighborhood. 
It's awesome because you get a run, you get some exercise, and you can have fun. Just inside the school entrance, there are two very large boxes of used shoes, at least enough to fill a couple refrigerators. In conjunction with the run, families donate their old shoes, including some from Columbine graduate Ryan Miles. Where should we donate all my old shoes to here? Because other people need shoes, and when I have shoes that I don't need, they should go to the people that need them. Families look forward to it, and they plan. They save their shoes all school year, and then when this happens, they bring them in and donate them. Ryan's mom, Lisa Miles, is on the Columbine PTA. She coordinated the shoe drive. It's been going on many years, and every year they take the shoes to a different location. Last year, I think they went to Guatemala and to Afghan refugees, but this year they're going to Honduras. Boulder-based nonprofit One World Running distributes the shoes. It was founded by Michael Sandrock, a former professional runner. He says the idea came to him after running a marathon in Africa in the mid-1980s. One of the guys who beat me, his name was Isaac, he had those plastic blue sandals that they have. One of the straps was broken, he had bloody feet. I ran with him for about 20 miles and he took off and I followed his bloody footsteps all the way to the finish. And when I got done, he finished about an hour ahead of me and he waited. He waited there in the hot sun. He waited for me to finish. I was so touched. So Sandrock gave Isaac his shoes. Turned out he was the uh, same size shoe as me. I was sponsored at the time. I gave him my pair of shoes, and that's how One World Running started. The nonprofit collects and washes the shoes and distributes them to kids and adults around the world, as well as to shelters and Native American reservations here in the U.S. He doesn't have a specific number, but Sandrock estimates One World Running has distributed tens of thousands of used athletic shoes over almost four decades. That's a lot of shoes. But it's a tiny portion of the over 20 billion pairs made every year. Most of them are made in Asia. It's a resource-intensive and toxic process, according to Elizabeth Klein. They have a higher environmental impact in general than our clothing, simply because they are made out of so many different kinds of materials. Those materials can be toxic in their creation. Shoe factories can be a very harsh place to work because of those chemicals and that, you know, those glues and adhesives. Klein teaches fashion policy and sustainability at Columbia University. She's written two books on the topic, including The Conscious Closet. Much of her work focuses on the problems with what's called fast fashion, That's the mass production of clothing that is both cheap to make and to buy. And when fast fashion quickly wears out, it ends up in landfills. Same with shoes. Elizabeth Klein. When a shoe is breaking down in a landfill, all of the glues and chemicals and EVA foam and plastics that it's made out of could potentially leach into the soil. Or it could be that the shoe simply doesn't break down. There are some shoe components that take hundreds, if not a thousand plus years to break down in landfills. And Klein says shoes are hard to recycle. We just don't have the systems in place to recycle shoes. It's very, very challenging to recycle a, a shoe because it, it really is just a, a sandwich, basically, of all of these different materials, many of them where there aren't even recycling solutions available for them yet. 
but many shoes can be repaired. All right, thank you very much. Thank you. George Perry's family has been fixing shoes in Boulder County since 1922, when his grandfather opened a shop in downtown Boulder. In 2017, when the landlord doubled his rent, the third-generation cobbler moved a half-hour drive west up Boulder Canyon to the small mountain town of Nederland. He repairs all kinds of shoes here with the help of some durable old machines. We have the sanding machines, we have the press. This is an outsole stitcher. We got it in the 50s. We glue on a midsole. Perry says about half the shoes he repairs are dress shoes, and the other half are hiking boots. Good shoes can be very expensive, and Perry says his customers are willing to invest in repairs so they can keep wearing them. There's a lot of good quality shoes people buy. You know, they could spend 300 to $500 on a pair of shoes. So to put $100 into them is definitely well worth it. They also fix other stuff, like zippers and leather backpacks, and the customer base is big enough to support the three-person team at Perry's Shoes. That's George, his wife Becky, and one employee. But there used to be seven people on staff. Perry says the decline in his business is connected to broader changes in consumer behavior and in the industry. Because it's more of a throwaway society, I guess. Everything used to be stitched on. Now pretty much everything is molded, glued on. So there's just a different way of making shoes. If you can't afford to buy and maintain more expensive shoes, and you want to avoid cheap footwear, sustainable fashion expert Elizabeth Klein recommends doing what she does, shopping secondhand. And that's how I personally afford better quality shoes and shoes that would absolutely be out out of my budget or beyond reach. Klein says there's sometimes a misperception about the used shoe market. I know some of your listeners, their first instinct might be like, that sounds maybe unsanitary or a little gross. But what's kind of surprising is even within the secondhand market, you'll find things that, you know, someone bought something put the shoes on at home and they didn't fit and they missed the return window. You can find a lot of shoes that are barely worn or even unworn. So whether it's repairing, reselling, or donating your old shoes, investing in and maintaining better quality shoes, or shopping secondhand, it all starts with being more conscious about what we put on our feet. I'm Sam Fuqua. And now the weekly newsreel where we check in with reporters on their latest stories from the Moab area. Citing noise and potential impacts for nearby residents, the Grand County Commission declined to make moves towards selling a 16-acre parcel of land on Murphy Lane. Developers say they were hoping to develop workforce housing on the site. Sophia Fisher of The Times Independent speaks with Molly Marcello about the issue. So this is actually a story from last week's county commission meeting on July 18th. And in that meeting, the county commission declined in a split vote to begin the process to potentially sell a parcel it owns on Murphy Lane that had been eyed for workforce housing from the same developers who are working on the Cane Creek Boulevard development. All right. So it was a split vote. That means it was a bit contentious, I'm sure, in the discussion. And why Mm. did they decide um, to decline to sell this parcel? So the the 16-acre 
parcel, I should say, includes like a very large hill. And the thought is that the developers would have had to remove a lot of dirt from the site Mm -hmm. to build this housing. And uh, Commission Vice Chair Kevin Walker cited the noise impacts of having all those dump trucks moving through residential neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that they also received something like six to eight uh, public comments that were, I think, basically all against the proposed sale. Um, but I think noise impacts uh, were a big issue cited. And Walker also said he thought that there were you know, many other things the commission was doing on affordable housing and other sites that might be more appropriate to build affordable housing. And that's what led him, him at least, to, to vote against. So in this week's edition of the Times Independent, there's a picture of this hill um, at the property that it's near, which is um, the former Soar No More building on Murphy Lane. It's kind of like mm-hmm. right when you turn. Um, onto Murphy Lane. Is that right, Sophia? Yes. So the developers do actually already own one acre of land, like right at the intersection of Murphy mm-hmm. Lane and Mill Creek Drive, and that's where the old Sorno Moore building is. But they had sought to buy an extra three to four adjacent acres from the county out of the 16-acre parcel to uh, try to create an over 100-unit workforce housing development. Okay. Um, It's interesting that this sale was was declined. This is really interesting too and I mean there were quotes from commissioners saying that they thought there was other a lot of other land available to develop housing on but then when I spoke with Trent Arnold one of the developers he said you know like if the county has something that they know of we want to hear about it because mm-hmm. it seems like there are a lot of vacant open available lots but you know Arnold said that when you actually go down and start talking to people a lot of those lots are um, tied up in kind of stalled development plans but mm-hmm. the landowners aren't willing to sell so he said it's actually appearances are kind of deceiving on the availability of um, buildable land in and around Moab. So this is the same as you report in the Times Independent. These are the same business partners that are building a larger development along King Creek Boulevard mm-hmm. um, that generated a little bit of controversy because of a proposed wastewater treatment plant there. Yes, and I think it's fair to say the whole development is kind of controversial as well, not just the treatment plant. Right. Um, and it is interesting. We reported um, on these plans to build workforce housing about a month ago, and Arnold said that you know I, the, the headline for that story was quote We're honestly trying to be good neighbors. Mm-hmm. So I know the business partners are talking about just trying to develop something for the community of Moab, and mm-hmm. in addition to this larger larger development. The council, yeah, was split on this, so that means that um, the parcel sale was declined. Did mm-hmm. the county commissioners discuss like what they might want to do with this piece of property, or are they just holding on to it for now? I mean, a little bit. So right now, most of it is pretty much unused but the road department at the county does use uh, a borrow pit for just like fill material and some residents have said they've been able to use material from that place as well so commissioner bill winfield who voted against not selling the property you know so was maybe more of a proponent of pursuing the process to Mm -hmm. sell um he was like are we we just going to make this free for residents i mean what is the purpose of Mm -hmm. us holding this land and there wasn't really an answer given at that meeting so i think jury jury's still a little bit out the discussion was not more i'd say than 10 or 12 minutes okay moving on where do you want to take us next in the times independent Electric motorcycles. Electric <laughs> motorcycles. Okay. Yeah, they're they're here in Moab, I, I suppose. They are. The Moab Police Department has just added two new electric motorcycles uh, to its squad of vehicles. Uh, these motorcycles, they're very cool, very high tech, and they were paid for with state beer tax funds and not by Moab City, is important to note. <laughs> okay, state beer tax funds. So revenue generated by that tax paid for these uh, motorcycles, as you just explained. Uh, what are the specs on, on these? these cycles? Yes, um, they were each uh, just shy of $16,000 and they have a 14.4 lithium ion battery that will stay charged for two to three days at a time. Mm -hmm. They are very quiet and um, folks at the police department have said that 
it will help officers navigate, uh, you know, a very crowded downtown, uh, snarled Main Street at times to enforce things like uh, traffic and DUIs, you know, red light running, jaywalking, things like that. So folks can expect to see law enforcement officers um, on these bikes. All right. There is a photo in the Times Independent of one of the office, one of Moab City's police officers um, sitting astride the new electric bikes. Anything else to say about this piece? I think it theoretically will help them do more trail patrols as well as been talked about maybe like patrolling the mill creek parkway after dark though mm-hmm. hopefully it will help the police department expand into other areas where they've maybe struggled with enforcement in the past all right now moving on um there are some changes in grand one of grand county's uh, departments the economic development department can you talk about this and the times independence coverage absolutely uh grand county's economic development director or then director um, august granith departed the uh, county rather abruptly on July 19th. Um, I spoke with members of a few associated boards uh, that work closely with that department and they said they were taken completely by surprise. It felt quite out of the blue. Uh, One person, Forrest Rogers, said he'd been texting Granith about um, having a meeting later that afternoon uh, until the announcement came. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, of course, asked the county about this and they've cited their policy on personnel matters and they won't discuss it. Granith has released a statement just expressing confidence in the department moving forward. But I think it's important to note that this comes in the context of a department that has seen its mandate change somewhat this year. Mm -hmm. Um, So, for example, the economic diversification program was rolled back, as folks may know, by state legislation that went dark July 1st, which means that there will be an increased emphasis on tourism promotion now from that department compared to previous years, since there's going to be more funding available for that, mandated for that, rather. Uh, In addition, the department's in the process of losing the up to Monument Valley Film Commission, which has mm. been within that department for the last 18 months. So, you know, not like a super historical part of the department, but still mm. an important part of it in, in recent months. Um, so I think it'll be interesting to see where the department goes from here. Um, you know, county officials have said there are no no plans to rebrand the department and they will be releasing a job posting for a new director in, in the coming weeks. All right. So they are going to rehire. Who is made up now of the Economic Development Department? There are still several folks who are managing tourism promotion in the department who have been there for several years. Um, Robert Rivera and Melissa Stocks. And then Sky White is also their admin assistant. Um, and in the interim, I've been told that Commission Administrator Mallory Nassau and Strategic Development Director Chris Baird will be kind of taking the helm on, on management until they hire a new director. So as you mentioned, Granis' departure um, as Economic Development Director came as a surprise or a shock. Um, The county is not um, making any additional comment citing personnel issues. So we don't know the details of that departure officially. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like you said, um, a lot of changes have come to this department from the outside, from the state, and closing that economic diversification program. But as you outlined, it sounds like um, the county is looking to hire um, someone else for that position. I'm curious, though, if that job description is going to be modified. It will be tweaked. Yes. Yeah. So I got that confirmation from from Mallory. And that's primarily yeah. just the result of, of the state bill and the economic diversification program uh, going dark. Anything else to say about the reaction to Granis' departure? I don't think so. I mean, I think, you know, he's certainly done a lot with the department in the last few years. Uh, Forrest Rogers was talking about how he's helped funnel money towards affordable housing in the community and childcare. Um, So I think he's done some, you know, really great work with the department. And it's important to note that when he came on as director in 2021, the department had also just... 
uh, been restructured the prior year and the economic diversification program had just started out. So I think it's very fair to say that he came on at a time of maybe not turmoil, um, but of changing expectations and, and changing descriptions within the department. So he's certainly seen it through a, a shifting time. Thank you so much for taking us through that piece. And there's more, of course, uh, to be read in the Times Independent. Um, finally, Sophia, uh, let's go to one more story in the TI. Uh, this takes us to the school district. Yes, um, I was lucky enough to interview Kat Vazquez, who's the new director of the Grand County School District's Child Nutrition Program. All right. So what is up with uh, this position? And I know that they need employees. <laughs> they sure do. Yes. The the program is unfortunately struggling in more ways than one. Um, they're very short staffed, like many other departments um, at the school district. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think, you know, the, the budgets still need to be changed a little bit. Um, I don't think the budgets are balanced at this point. And uh, Kat Vazquez also said that the program is quite reliant on, you know, prepackaged foods that aren't maybe the most nutritious things. So she has a, a very ambitious kind of five-year agenda to hire staff, shore up the program, find new sources of revenue so it can make ends meet, um, as well as changing the way food is served, too, and just trying to bring like more healthful, fresh foods to the students in Grand County. Okay, so her plans are ambitious. Um, And where does she come from in her work experience? Yes, uh, she's been in food service for decades upon decades, uh, primarily uh, in the healthcare industry, I know. um, But I know that she also minored in nutrition way back when she uh, got degrees quite a while ago. Um, She seems to, you know, have an amazing breadth of experience uh, in the food service industry and cooking for large swaths of people and also just like managing the financial side of of large food service programs, which Mm -hmm. I think will, will greatly benefit her in the role. It sounds like, you know, she knows that this is a challenging job, but as she told you that she's up for these challenges, anything else to say about um, her new position or like what she wants to do over the next five years? Totally. Well, I think one important thing that actually was just approved by the Grand County School Board um, just last week was increasing uh, the prices of meals at the school district. So just so everybody knows, student breakfasts and lunches all rose by 25 cents each, and then adult meal prices rose by either a dollar or dollar fifty each depending mm-hmm. if you're looking at breakfast or lunch um, and that was actually at the recommendation of state officials who came down to review Grand County's mm-hmm. uh, meal program you know this is not you know increasing these prices is not necessarily going to be the the only thing that uh, makes the program break even but it's a start mm-hmm. and the state did find that current prices were not covering the cost of food so they definitely recommended a, a small increase um, and prices still seem quite reasonable to me but you know she's looking at so many different ways to increase revenue talking about smoothie machines and iced coffee machines and having fundraisers mm-hmm. and maybe doing some sort of in-house catering system mm-hmm. creating grab-and-go lunch stands um, and increasing participation rates too I should say that student participation rates in the program have been dropping. So I think that's something she's trying to change as well. Sophia Fisher, reporter at the Times Independent. Subscription information and more stories can be found at moabtimes.com. And that's it for the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. Allison Harford of the Moab Sun is off again this week, but she promises to be back for the newsreel next Friday. You can find the pieces that were mentioned today in the show notes at our website, kzmu.org, or wherever you listen to the KZMU News Podcast. As always, thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU, community-powered radio.